one of the foremost barriers is this general perception that achieving a zero energy project costs extra. It's such a pervasive belief that it almost doesn't matter that it's not true because if people believe it's true, they won't even approach the subject. Hey, what's up and welcome to another episode of Three Things Energy, the podcast that provides plain language conversations with experts on the leading energy solutions to climate change. Let's meet today's guest. I'm Ann Edminster. I'm a zero energy consultant. Anne Edminster is a leading international expert on zero energy efficient homes. She works with builders, developers, homeowners, design firms, investors, utilities, and more all across the United States and Canada. She's also the author of Energy Free, a guide for designers and builders that wish to create zero energy homes. And finally, she serves on the board of the Net Zero Energy Coalition, which works to accelerate market adoption of net zero energy buildings and communities across North America. So what exactly is a net zero building in your definition? Simplest terms, uh, and a building that produces as much renewable energy in the course of a year as it consumes during the year. So Anne, give me the pitch. What's in it for me? Why would I want to live in a net zero house or work in a net zero office or learn in a net zero school for that matter? Wow, so many reasons. Um, kind of depends on what your priorities are as to which you might put first, but I'll start with my top reason, which relates to climate change. So this is uh, the best way, to my knowledge, of combating climate change, working at this the level of influence of an individual. So whether you're looking to build the house, design the house or building, um, finance it or so forth. That's a, a nice lever to pull in the climate change arsenal. Okay, I'm going to come back to that in a moment, as you might expect. Um, but what are some of the other benefits that we hear uh, tossed around about net zero buildings other than uh, carbon and climate uh, benefits? Other reasons are it's a better building. It's a more comfortable building. It'll be one that serves you better over the lifespan because it's designed with um, more inherent durability, um, reduced maintenance, and so forth. And uh, improved comfort, too, which is not a trivial consideration. So... And you can have all of that essentially for the same price tag as a conventional building that doesn't have any of those things. So why wouldn't you? So how do our current buildings, the way we build them today, how are they not uh, serving us on the climate challenge front? And how would a net zero uh, building be different? Buildings are responsible for, depending on what locale you're in, might be 40 to 70% of emissions in a given urban area, for example. That's a big chunk of the pie. And just to clarify, you're talking about natural gas burning to heat hot water for hot water tanks, uh, furnaces for heating of homes and offices and other buildings, uh, boilers in industrial buildings, am I right? Primarily heating and cooling the buildings, but increasingly what we could refer to as the plug loads, all of the electrical devices that are plugged in inside those buildings, and as well as heating water. So those are the, the big four. Right, and you include what you call plug loads, all of the devices, gadgets, uh, appliances inside the building because they lead back to... 
to a power plant. Which is? Generally burning fossil fuels. So, you know, we're in California, of course, we have a pretty good renewable portfolio standard. So we're a little bit cleaner on the grid than much of North America. But nevertheless, as a culture, we're still very dependent on fossil fuel consumption for making us comfortable and giving us all those electrical conveniences we're so used to. So a net zero building generates all of the energy it needs with renewable, uh, 100% carbon-free electricity. And I take it uh, that's usually solar? Typically solar. That's, that's by far the majority renewable energy source for uh, zero energy projects. You inserted electricity, a building that produces all its own electricity to meet its own needs. But of course, a lot of buildings also have a um, mixed fuel profile. What do you mean by mixed fuel profile? Natural gas or propane, sometimes fuel oil or even cordwood might be part of the fuel profile for a given building. So one of the big trends in this field is also to move to full electrification. So we're really looking to get rid of fossil fuels completely. That's kind of the next wave. Well, that all sounds great to take the uh, natural gas heating out of the picture uh, and replace it with electricity, but doesn't that increase the amount of electricity that you need to generate to keep the building comfortable, which puts more pressure on the solar panels? Well, I wouldn't put it that way exactly. Uh, Certainly, you're going to need more panels to meet your energy requirements when you shift more of your energy use from uh, a fossil fuel to electricity. I wouldn't say put more more pressure on the panels you have because they have only a finite capacity to produce. Um, The positive impact is when you shift away from fossil fuels to electricity, you have the ability to meet those needs with clean renewable energy. Whereas except for a very, very small potential contribution by clean natural gas. And just for the benefit of our listeners, and just put air quotes around clean natural gas, um, justifiably so, I'm just wondering, Anne, if there's a scalability uh, issue here. Take a school, for example, 2,000 students, cold winter, uh, the building may need to generate a fair amount of energy to stay uh, comfortable, and uh, operate all of its equipment and so forth. Is is scalability an issue uh, for net zero buildings? Primarily vertical. So Mm -hmm. actually, it's interesting you use a school as an example. Schools typically tend not to be super high rise. Okay, then what about an office tower? So an office tower would be a little more challenging. Um, Right now, the practical limits to achieving zero net energy or zero net carbon on site are, depends on climate and a lot of other particulars, but let's say somewhere in the low to mid-range, um, mid-rise range, I should say. So that said, another one of the shifts we're seeing in this field right now is not only towards electrification, but to a greater understanding that we need to achieve a net zero carbon, not always at the individual building scale, but rather at the community scale. And we need to be looking at our ability to net, not over a year long basis, but on a day to day and season to season basis. So we've got more of a balancing act that we're working with right now. Um, It's got a little more complex as we've gotten farther into the zero energy equation and started to uh, realize what all the nuances are. 
Okay, let's talk about uptake and adoption uh, for a minute or two. Now, you are a board member of the Net Zero Energy Coalition, which produces an annual inventory, a sort of a census of net zero or zero energy buildings in North America. Can you tell me about the most recent findings from that? Yeah, so the inventory is is really a very fun project to work on. And this past year was extremely gratifying. It was our third year. So of course, year one was a baseline. Year two, we showed some growth, 33% growth in number of units. And then this past year, the 2017 inventory, we actually saw a 70% growth over the uh, prior year. That said, the zero energy housing stock still represents an infinitesimal fraction of all the housing in North America. So it's exciting, but on the other hand, we have a long ways to go. Yeah, I have the report here, and I'm just looking at it. It says there are about 1.4 million houses are built each year in the United States and Canada, and the total uh, zero energy homes you've identified so far comes to 13,906. Right. Tiny, tiny, tiny. And it's further complicated in terms of comparing those statistics in that our just shy of 14,000 units aren't starts, which is what the right. uh, you know used to U.S. statistical abstract reports. And so we have a ways to go before we can even really compare. But since it's a tiny number, we're more interested in the fact that we are seeing uptake and more and more excitement around this trend. There's excitement, of course, but the numbers, as you say, are still tiny, 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 tiny. So what are the lead barriers here? I'm thinking cost is one, uh, but the barriers are real. The barriers are real. And the most fascinating thing about the barriers from my perspective is that they are commonly perceived as being technological. And in fact, from my perspective, they are not. Mm -hmm. Sure, technology improvements will offer us some additional benefits in achieving zero net energy, but really the primary benefits are cultural and institutional. So we have barriers in financing uh, and the whole sort of money industry appraisals and so forth, which don't really recognize the benefit and make it hard for people to actually price things properly. Um, And also education uh, across the whole array of stakeholders from uh, public officials in policy and regulatory positions to, again, the finance and uh, real estate industry, to all of the players in the building and construction industry. Everybody needs education. And in fact, I believe one of the foremost barriers is this general perception that achieving a zero energy project costs extra. It's such a pervasive belief that it almost doesn't matter that it's not true, because if people believe it's true, they won't even approach the subject. Wait, are you talking about operating costs or build costs? Say there's two houses, new houses next door to each other built at the same time. One's built to code, the other net zero. They're both the same construction cost? Yes, although I'd say that's a little bit... There's a little asterisk. Right. Exactly. Or maybe it's a big asterisk. So one of my pet peeves is that a lot of studies have been done in the past, and the fundamental question that they seek to answer, the wrong question, is how much extra does it cost to achieve zero energy? Mm 
By the way, we're dropping the net because if you're kind of a geek in this field, you understand we're talking about a net over some period of time. And if you're not a geek in this field, it doesn't, it's not meaningful. <laughs> so we're generally trying to just say zero energy. Did you catch that listeners? That's a world premiere of a rebranding. The net zero energy building movement is now simply the zero energy building movement. Rapidly shifting to zero carbon, by the way, but... <laughs> I was going to get to that next, actually. Yeah, it's... it's uh, but, but keep going where you were going with that. Right. Yes. So, so where was I? Yes. Okay. So we've had these, quote, scientific studies done by credible consulting organizations asking this question, how much extra does it cost? Well, funny thing is, if that's the question you ask, the answer is going to be, it costs X amount extra. And the, the underlying premise of all these studies has been, if you take X building, you know, imagine I'm showing you a little, you know, monopoly house in my hands here. Mm -hmm. If you take this building and you have to do stuff to it to make it zero energy, you're probably adding stuff, right? You're adding more insulation, you're upgrading some piece of equipment. But the piece of thought, the really important concept that's completely bypassed in that question and that conceptual approach is, oh, wait, but what if it's not the monopoly house that we've already assigned a form to? Mm -hmm. What if it's just, we have this much money and we need to house this many people in this location. How do we achieve that? in a zero energy product within our budget, you get a very different answer. You get an answer that's, oh, well, we'll build this house. Mm -hmm. And oh, by the way, yes, it achieves zero energy. Is it maybe a little different than if you just ask the question, I'm gonna build a house and 10 years later, or 10 minutes later, or 10 months later, oh, by the way, hey, what if we made it zero energy? we would have to add stuff because we hadn't baked it into the initial design proposition and the budget. So when you construe something as additional, it always costs extra. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When you construe it as part of the original charge, funny thing, it doesn't cost anything extra. That is a long explanation though, Anne. <laughs> right. So given that we're expecting that people will probably need to get their heads around a different proposition for valuing homes. I, I'm thinking that policy is really needed to fill the gap in the meantime, isn't it? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah policy so is definitely, it's a huge enabler. Let me backtrack a little bit, though. The other, there's another lens to put on mm -hmm. the does it cost extra piece, mm -hmm. which is the other conceptual mistake that I think all of us have been making, whether we're in this field or not, is to somehow equate the zero energy building and the not zero energy building is somehow being comparable when they're not. Because the zero energy building is a building and an energy production system. Now, you wouldn't assign the same price tag to that as you would say a new car or a new car plus a travel trailer right? I mean, that's just entirely mistaken thinking. So the other way to think about this is the whole energy production side of this equation really belongs in another budget bucket entirely, right? It's like that belongs in the utility bucket. We're just taking on some of the responsibilities of utility 
on a given property. And that's been completely whooshed, just glossed over in all of this. So it's, 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 again, it's the wrong question and it's the wrong mental model. So really zero energy buildings are challenge us to not only reconsider what home looks like, the monopoly piece you mentioned, but also how we finance homes, what we include and what we don't when we look down the balance sheet and calculate that mortgage payment. Well, and our role in regard to the utilities and the grid. You know, we're all of a sudden, we're just talking about embodying more of that system, which we previously thought of as external. And, and the funny thing is, you take a home with a solar array on the roof, yeah, many times you can see the solar array, but at a kind of a macro level, that's still sort of invisible to us. So we're not really perceiving it in the same way, let's say, as the car towing a travel trailer. But it really is like that. I want to get back to the role of policy in this equation, since this is such a complete mind shift for many people. This is really where governments shine. What are the best policies to accelerate the zero energy uh, building shift? Well... Uh, here we are in California, <laughs> which in many ways I would say is the seat of zero energy policy uh, innovation and progress. In the country or in the world? I'm not going to go so far as to say the world, because there's a lot going on in other parts of the world, which I don't claim to be deeply expert on. But I, certainly in the U.S., yeah. the, the California has really taken a leadership role. What we see is an evolution in the building code and particularly the energy portion of the building code, which we know as Title 24. It's actually Title 24, Part 6. And if you were appointed California Energy Commissioner tomorrow, what would be the first things that you would put on your to-do list? Well, specific to buildings, well, certainly no expansion of natural gas to serve buildings, A number one. Um, Implementation of programs to curtail and prune back the existing natural gas infrastructure. There's a very interesting um, pilot program in Massachusetts, in the Boston metro area. I don't know how far along they've gotten with it, but the idea was that if you could get people within, let's say, a block to agree to eliminate natural gas in their homes, In return, they would be provided with a cash incentive that would cover the cost of conversion to all electric. And given the necessity of um, upgrading, maintaining, replacing, et cetera, the natural gas, very aged natural gas infrastructure, it was determined that that would be pretty darn close to a cost wash. So implementing a program like that would be the next thing I would say, let's do for the state of California. Let's immediately look at how we can um, redirect funds that would otherwise go into the natural gas infrastructure into that type of conversion program. What do we do with all the existing homes that are out there, tens of millions of them across North America? How do we bring those up to a net zero energy ready uh, level? So existing buildings are the big nut to crack. And so what we really need to look at is electrification of those existing buildings. And that means conversion of space heating and water heating and cooking from natural gas and propane to electricity. But electrification doesn't address the core problem of efficiency. These are not high-performance homes. Yeah, we do have a lot of... uh, 
very inefficient building enclosures that need to be retrofitted. We're starting to work on existing buildings, but we are not very far down that road yet. Getting back to new construction for a minute, British Columbia, where I hail from, has introduced a energy step code, also known as a stretch code. These allow cities, as you know, to incentivize or require a level of energy efficiency uh, in buildings that goes above and beyond uh, what the code requires. It's getting some pretty good pickup. Um, I'm just wondering, does California have a stretch code like that? Oh, absolutely. And and again, in effect, that's what, also what happened in California with the 2006 right. executive order. So again, it didn't have the force of law at that time. But we also have, I mentioned Title 24, Part 11, yeah. Cal Green, which establishes stretch codes here in California. Are local governments using those stretch codes? They are. It's mm-hmm. We're, again, fairly early in adoption, but there are a number of cities that have either adopted the tiers, advanced tiers of Cal Green, um, which are looking at those uh, gotcha. stretch goals, and or their own flavors thereof. So among those cities, I think perhaps Santa Monica is the best well-known, best known, sorry. <laughs> Too many modifiers there. Um, Palo Alto's also got a very progressive code, and there are other other cities around the country that are looking at similar things. Boulder is one, Cambridge is one, so uh, Burlington, Vermont, there are many cities that are starting to follow this model. Of course, all of those are progressive or liberal strongholds. Uh, so clearly there's a strong business case for high-performance buildings. And, and there's nothing especially partisan about energy efficiency. What will it take in your mind to get conservative audiences and conservative states and cities more engaged? Well, ideally, this would be a nonpartisan issue because there are many benefits that accrue from this. We've... Uh, uh, among the events yesterday, you may also have heard about the job growth that has uh, come forward as a result of all of the green building energy efficiency initiatives, which somehow the more retrogressive elements in our society politically don't seem to find objectionable, interestingly enough, mm-hmm. while they still fight about the whole climate change thing. But who doesn't love more jobs in a clean energy sector? One great example we have here in California is the town of Lancaster, which is in our Inland Empire, a real more conservative bastion. And in fact, the mayor there, Rex Paris, is is very interesting advocate and he's not a political progressive but he is absolutely bullish on zero energy and has made Lancaster one of the progressive most progressive communities in California in terms of zero energy codes policies and programs so clearly if you are thinking at all clearly it is a nonpartisan issue and should transcend ideological lines if Again, it might require removing certain ideological blinders in order to see the validity of the numbers, but they are there to be seen. So what's the recipe then? What is the right combination of top-down through policy and bottom-up through organizing to really start to build some traction and some some excitement around the shift to net zero energy homes. One of the really fascinating learnings from the Net Zero Energy Coalition's inventory was looking at clusters of zero energy development and saying, okay, what's going on in those areas? Inevitably, there was policy action in the hotspots 
and or grassroots action. So there were places you could identify individual firms who simply made it their mission to promote zero energy in their area and started to make things happen. So it's, I I call this a, a virtuous circle, right? Where you can have individuals who get something going and it's the grit and the oyster, and then they start, um, increasing the dialogue in their area. Those people start influencing policymakers. Then there's a policy handed down and it starts to feed more at the grassroots. And so you have this amplification effect that's really tremendous. So anywhere, anyone, anywhere can exercise influence by inserting themselves wherever in that cycle they fit. And administer of the Net Zero Energy Coalition, Hey, this has been a really fascinating talk. Thanks for speaking with me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thanks to you out there in our studio audience. To follow the work of the Net Zero Energy Coalition, they're on Twitter at NZE Coalition. And Anne Edminster is there as well at Anne Edminster. That's without an E, Anne. And if you're digging three things energy, please let the world know. One way to do that is to leave a review in the iTunes podcast directory or wherever fine podcasts are available. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you back here again soon.